Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm Dave McCrae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today I'll be speaking to Dr. Ancha Misbak, Research Fellow in Anthropology at Monash University and author of the new book Troubled Transit, Asylum Seekers Stuck in Indonesia. Ancha has only recently returned from a research trip to Aceh province at the northern tip of Sumatra where she visited temporary camps set up for Rohingya asylum seekers from Myanmar who began arriving in May. The arrival of the Rohingya was fascinating because they attracted widespread sympathy in Indonesia, a country whose population has been largely indifferent to the presence of asylum seekers in the past. Achenese fishermen even defied orders from the Indonesian Navy not to help the Rohingya and instead rescued them at sea and brought them ashore. The actions of these fishermen left Indonesia with little choice but to agree to shelter approximately 1,800 Rohingya asylum seekers temporarily for one year. I started by asking Ancha why the Indonesian government's reaction had been to try to prevent the Rohingya from arriving, when Indonesia has a history of basically doing very little to prevent asylum seekers from reaching its shores. Well, I suppose the biggest difference is that um, usually people enter Indonesia rather clandestinely. They do arrive by boat, often they cross over from Malaysia into Indonesia, but um, smaller groups, uh, definitely smaller numbers, and um, the difference with the Rohingya was that uh, their arrival was kind of anticipated because of all the news that were out um, in the open. Uh, so the Indonesian government knew about several boats that had gotten stuck in the middle of the sea. Um, and they knew that they were heading towards Indonesia so they, in a way, could um, prepare for not welcoming these people. It wasn't only the reaction by the Indonesian authorities that was different. Whereas Indonesians had shown indifference to the tens of thousands of asylum seekers who have passed through the country over the past 15 years, they extended much greater sympathy to the Rohingya. I mean, I basically agree with you. Um, there's a lot of indifference, simply because the numbers of uh, overall asylum seekers are not that uh, big, at least not compared to other uh, countries in the region, where we're basically talking about hundreds of thousands and not just tens of thousands. Um, I think the Rohingya just maybe happened to arrive at a, at a good moment in time and I'm saying this uh, because there was just so much media attention and the attention had uh, been built up um, because there was so much uh, reporting uh, on them even before they made it to uh, Malaysia and Indonesia and uh, this has to do with the, the mass graves that had been discovered uh, in southern Thailand um, and so on and so on. So the topic had been around for a bit. Where I proposed indifference, Ancha explained that the better term to describe the Indonesian authorities' approach to asylum seekers has been benevolent neglect. But coming back uh, to Indonesia's overall approach, I mean, some people uh, have used uh, the, the phrase of um, benevolent uh, neglect to describe mm. Indonesia's attitude, and I think it's in a way uh, a good term to describe what is happening. Um, although I assume it could be changing a little bit um, in, in the future, so in the early 2000s when the first um, uh, groups of asylum seekers, mostly from Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran, started um, coming to Indonesia and using Indonesia as a transit country, everybody was kind of aware that they would not stay for very long because they were on their way to Australia. Indonesia was just a stepping stone. However, ever since in Australia has decided to um, seal its border, um, it's much more complicated for them to reach uh, Australia. In fact, it's almost impossible. A couple of boats have tried under the um, oper uh, new operations or in borders, 
but they were all being uh, turned back. So in a way, people are now stuck in Indonesia, and I think the authorities are becoming increasingly aware of that the transiting time is expanding. Uh, so we're not talking about a couple of months, but we're probably talking about uh, years, and their presence in, in limbo, of course, will in the future have much more of an impact on the surrounding uh, population uh, of where asylum seekers and refugees are being hosted. Basically, because um, there is not enough um, places of uh, in where these people could be um, kept. So detention centers are co completely over overcrowded. Um, community shelters and community housing has worked in some of the places quite um, well, but not not everywhere. And um, it seems like. Um, some parts of the Indonesian government, they, they cling on to this idea this is just going to be temporary and that's why we don't have to provide any uh, permanent or long-term solutions. And this way of thinking particularly becomes um, obvious in um, Aceh because rather than um, taking the newly arrived people out of Aceh and taking them to either detention centers or community housings, it was always decided that these people would stay in temporary uh, camps in, in Aceh. So, their housing is extremely provisionary um, and again it was a measure to make sure that people will not be integrated for long into the Indonesian society. Going back to the question of Indonesian public support for the Rohingya, Ancha outlined how the exceptional outpouring of public sympathy has manifested. Well what we could see was uh, a number of very spontaneous uh, actions for donation and this donation had all sorts of forms. For example, people were uh, handing out a lot of uh, clothes. When I visited some of the camps, there were like massive piles of second-hand clothes laying around. But there was also a lot of uh, food being provided, um, particularly around uh, Muslim festivities such as uh, Idul Fitri. People were sending all sorts of um, yeah, like goats uh, or other special foods. Um, there was, of course, uh, money that was given uh, to organizations so that they could um, build shelters. Um, but we could also see like small gestures. For example, there was uh, in Asia, like a, a small uh, football club that would come and, and donate some um, balls to the children to play with. So all sorts of um, different levels of uh, solidarity that uh, actually emerged. A Chinese fisherman, of course, went further actually rescuing the Rohingya at sea against orders from the military. Ancha set out the special circumstances behind their reaction. Well, for fishermen, of course, in a way, it's compulsory to uh, lend each other assistance because they all know what it's like to be out there in the sea uh, with no help. So I guess it was just a, a basic feeling of like, uh, yeah, humanitarianism. But I also suppose that um, orders from the Indonesian military may might not have meant too much to, to our Chinese to begin with, uh, and that could maybe be explained with the um, historical background of Aceh and, and the rather tense relationship with the authorities in Jakarta for why they would uh, choose to ignore uh, orders from, from the military. Um, so the military did equip some of the boats with uh, fuel and, and food, but um, Again, Antonis decided to, to bring them on land, uh, provide them with food, clothing. Um, and it's quite interesting to see that um, 
feelings of uh, solidarity were sometimes expressed also that Japanese people would prefer them to, to stay and they would be happy to assist them uh, or help them to find work. Um, I heard this kind of sentiments uh, on, on a couple of occasions. Um, this of course is not in line with uh, Indonesian law, like Indonesia does not um, want to tolerate like permanent integration of asylum seekers or refugees into its uh, territory. But um, Chinese, when they, when they talk about the Rohingya, they often stress like cultural similarities, um, the, the shared religion uh, does matter quite a bit. Um, the sort of Muslim solidarity probably um, has has had much more impact compared to other sorts of uh, asylum seekers which we have uh, seen in Indonesia over the last 15 years. Like no other ethnic group, uh, be it like uh, Muslim asylum seekers from Somalia or even Hazara has ever triggered so much uh, attention uh, from the Indonesian uh, population or even the civil society there. I asked Ancha why the Rohingya had benefited from this stronger Muslim solidarity, whether it was the Southeast Asian connection. I do think that uh, it, uh, it's the Southeast Asian connection, it's like the, the cultural uh, familiarity of um, the Rohingya, mm -hmm. but I guess it's also that um, the media just have, like in the, in the build up to the elections in Myanmar, have like uh, stressed uh, that the faith of these uh, minorities in, in Myanmar to quite a big extent, so people have learned about their backgrounds but they might not be aware necessarily of the backgrounds and the reasons for why people from Quetta have to flee for their lives. With Indonesia having agreed to provide temporary shelter to the Rohingya, Ancha explained that they have been placed in four temporary camps in Aceh where conditions vary from wooden barracks to tents, but that many of the 1800 have already moved on. There were about 1,800 people in uh, Aceh, but the number has actually drastically decreased, and this is for two reasons. So first of all, it turned out that not all people on those boats were actually Rohingya, but uh, some of them were from Bangladesh. And um, it, very early on it was decreed that these people would be uh, repatriated to, to Bangladesh, so they had been basically screened out and also hosted um, in, in slightly different places. Um, there's only a very small number remaining uh, in, in Aceh. Um, some of them have managed to abscond, uh, trying to get into um, Malaysia. And this is basically also the second uh, reason for why we see only about, um, yeah, basically less than 500 people remaining in Aceh at the moment, is that many of them um, grew tired of waiting and not seeing any action, and they basically have. Um, use the help or the services of uh, smugglers to reach Malaysia. Normally in Indonesia, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and the International Organization for Migration provide services to asylum seekers and refugees. Ancha explained though that the exceptional outpouring of public sympathy for the Rohingya has seen various Indonesian NGOs become involved in Aceh. In, in other areas where asylum seekers uh, and refugees have turned up, um, the IOM and the UNHCR and, and the Indonesian immigration authorities, they have basically uh, gotten a lot of experience of how to deal with these um, situations. They have like uh, standard operation procedures in, in place. Um, however, 
it seems like it doesn't work as, as smoothly in actually as it does in, in other places. Um, and I think one of the reasons is the involvement of um, NGOs. Um, I think a lot of the problems that we have seen on the ground is um, basically a lack of communication. For example, when um, the NGOs built new barracks and uh, wanted to uh, relocate uh, the Rohingyas into these new places, I mean, what they should have done is to at least let the uh, uh, immigration authorities know about this. But um, in some cases, they didn't bother to give notice, which of course then uh, stood up some bad tensions amongst the uh, immigration authorities, who are of course in charge of like administrating administering these um, these people. Um, maybe sometimes uh, NGOs were just like uh, overstepping their. Um, responsibilities or they were just not aware of like the services that come from organizations such as the IOM. They rather viewed them in terms of a competitor rather, uh, rather than something else. So I mean as it happens in, in, in many scenarios, um, there is a bit of a competition amongst NGOs. Everybody wants to uh, uh, go for the um, attention, they need to report back to the to the donors, so they need to show real results. So any uh, barrack they can build will of course uh, give them more credibility and help them to raise uh, funds in the future. So it's not surprising that in some of the shelters we see very different buildings of very different um, quality. I asked Amcha what she could tell us about these Indonesian NGOs, who they are and who their donors are for their activities in Aceh. Oh, there's actually uh, a lot of um, these groups. Um, for example, there was uh, Insan TV and uh, Rocha TV. They're both um, not necessarily just uh, NGOs, but they're basically connected to uh, television shows. Um, but they they seem to have like some sort of um, humanitarian arm that supports uh, refugees. Uh, another NGO which was uh, quite dominant in the field was um, ACT, which uh, stands for Aksichapat Tangap. Um, and so that's, uh, I guess, rapid response. Yes, okay. something like this. Uh, so I think they, they basically came into place like after the tsunami, so they have a bit of um, experience in responding to disasters. Um, and um, they were very much involved in, in the camp in, in Loxemawe. So um, they built uh, the shelters where the uh, Rohingya are now living in. Uh, they provided some sort of like pangachi um, uh, and like... Um, Religious, religious instruction, instruction uh, to children, but then of course you also have like a couple of Western NGOs like Save the Children, which uh, was trying quite hard to um, uh, provide basic uh, education to children or uh, trying to introduce some like trauma cancelling. The circumstances that have arisen with the involvement of Indonesian NGOs, Ancha explained, mean that despite being the recipients of an almost unique outpouring of public sympathy among asylum seekers and refugees in Indonesia, the Rohingya are not actually in a better position than others. I don't know, I mean for my general uh, observations, I think like uh, given that these people are still living in these makeshift camps, um, the situation is a lot worse and also mm. like even though some NGOs uh, claim that they're providing services, they're not as good or not as consistent as in other places where um, asylum seekers are being housed, so there's probably uh, more recreational activities being offered or maybe even more like whatever language courses or some sort of uh, vocational training compared to uh, what's, what's happening in Aceh. So you've got, I guess, almost this strange situation where that public support hasn't translated to 
even equivalent conditions to, to other asylum seekers. No, and I mean, even though uh, some of the NGOs claim that they have that they have been raising uh, large sums of money, I mean, it's of course not entirely clear whether this money actually makes all the way um, mm. in and, and becomes part of the services provided um, to uh, those Rohingya. I mean, I haven't seen any auditing, or I, I don't know, like um, who's actually checking on the transparency of some of these NGOs. But I just had the impression that uh, a lot of the housing was definitely substandard and from from the provisions of activities was definitely less than what can be find, uh, found in other like community shelters. Uh, I mean I'm not sure. comparing uh, the situation to uh, immigration detention centers which of course is very different again but um, mm. yeah so there's a lot of NGOs that um, want to do good but um, I don't know it seemed a bit uh, questionable on whether the outcome was actually What lies ahead for the approximately 500 Rohingya remaining in Aceh? Ancha explained that when Indonesia, along with Thailand and Malaysia, agreed to shelter Rohingya for a single year, their agreement was based on a hope that the international community would resettle them. Um, Even at the very start of this agreement, the time frame was rather unrealistic. Um, Waiting times uh, in Malaysia, but also in Indonesia, are much longer than a year. Uh, and now with this uh, global situation, um, of course, it has become a lot more complicated uh, to expect that any of these Rohingya would be um, resettled by third countries, uh, most of all because of the uh, crisis in Syria and uh, the millions of people that are coming out of uh, this area. The exodus of refugees from Syria has absorbed the resettlement quota of countries like Germany, that have taken some refugees from Indonesia in the past, Anja explained. Nevertheless, from Indonesia's point of view at least, the presence of the Rohingya in Aceh may be a situation that largely resolves itself. I mean, one possibility, which is probably quite realistic, is that uh, by May the numbers of uh, Rohingya still in Aceh have uh, decreased to like an absolute uh, minimum. Okay, I mean, how many are we talking right at the moment? Uh, it's less than 500, but okay. basically people are absconding on almost a daily basis. Um, mm. I think, like as I said before, like there are hardly any people from Bangladesh left. Um, everybody who has some connections to Malaysia probably will s- try to get there sooner or later. Um, if there's only like a tiny lump number of uh, Rohingyans left, they might just be taken to um, other places or in Indonesia if uh, space in shelters becomes available. Anche has repeatedly mentioned that, when they have been able to, the Rohingya have absconded from Indonesia to Malaysia. UNHCR said in 2014 that it had registered more than 35,000 Rohingya in Malaysia over the years, and believed there to be many more in the country. I asked Anche whether the long-term presence of many asylum seekers from Myanmar in Malaysia was the reason the Rohingya in Aceh are seeking to go there. Yeah, there are definitely several uh, reasons for this. Um, some of them have family members uh, already living in Malaysia, so they seek uh, to reunite the family. Uh, we actually have seen quite a large number of uh, women and children amongst those who, who are stranded in Aceh. So for them, the main incentive would be to reunite with their husbands, brothers, fathers maybe. But then, of course, also um, chances for them to make money and remit these uh, 
this money back to, to Myanmar is a lot bigger than in Indonesia. So if, even for those who don't have any family in Malaysia, they still might to try to, to cross over uh, and maybe find some informal work in plantation or construction site. This movement of the Rohingya from Indonesia to Malaysia of course raises the question of what their preferred outcome was when they first arrived in Indonesia in May. In many cases, asylum seekers in Indonesia are seeking to ultimately reach Australia. I asked Ancha about this, whether the Rohingya were a cohort of people trying to reach Australia or had other aims. Well, their main destination was always Malaysia. Mm. Um, and that they ended up in Indonesia was probably never the main intention. It was due to bad weather and uh, uh, a lot of other terrible things that happened um, on those boats. And some of the people had been um, like for two, three or even four months on the water. So um, when, when asking them, it's uh, basically that they want to make money, uh, preferably in Malaysia where they could earn more money. But um, some people are even keen to stay in Indonesia and start working there. And mm. I mean, in an informal way, this has of course started like people helping out local fishermen or um, selling their, their goods. Like they're interested in like, um, letting their, their daily lives continue in a, in a meaningful way. They just don't want to be uh, sitting around doing nothing without having any like uh, serious prospect of being resettled anywhere. So they don't want their lives to be on hold, but they want to be active. They want to get on with yeah whatever they've been doing before. So um, when I visited one of the camps, um, they had actually asked some, some of the Rohingya to help out with um, digging some, some holes in the ground and uh, I think they were given like a little like a sort of pocket money um, and from the, the little communication that was uh, possible with them, uh, these Rohingya men were demanding like a higher pay, they didn't want to get 10,000 an hour but they wanted to have more so I think they're all uh, under some sort of stress of um, having to remit money or maybe even having to repay some of their former debts that uh, they accumulated when coming uh, to Indonesia or well Malaysia, respectively. Okay, okay. So, I but, mean, but Australia has never been their intention. Like they weren't interested in, in going to Australia. It has been a feature of people from Myanmar sheltering in Malaysia that they have not sought to go to Australia. I asked Ancha why Malaysia was an attractive final destination, and whether it was somewhere they could establish a viable life. As my impression had been that by all reports, life was harsh for asylum seekers in Malaysia. It is definitely harsh, uh, given like uh, that they have very strict um, sentences for um, people who are found uh, without valid immigration um, documents. Uh, I mean, and this uh, in- incorporates also like uh, physical punishment and such as caning. But on the other hand, it seems that uh, the Malaysian economy has a large demand for like. Um, low-paid, um, in a way, exportable uh, labor laborers. Um, a lot of the, uh, be it, uh, in the plantation sector, but also like in the construction sector, seems to heavily depend on this like exploitable cheap labor. Okay. So, I don't know. I mean, it's probably not a, a way of um, setting up like a sustainable, um, life in Malaysia, but I mean, if you have to choose between um, uh, being kicked out of uh, Myanmar, being displaced from your homes um, and and lacking basic rights uh, because they're not um, acknowledged as citizens, I mean, even an exploiter um, or like even a a job uh, 
that doesn't pay that well in Malaysia is still a better option for right. them. So it's basically choosing between two bad choices. Turning to the future, I asked Ancha how she thought the experience of dealing with the Rohingya over the past six months would influence Indonesia's response if a new wave of Rohingya were to arrive. Whether we might see more efforts to turn boats away, or whether Indonesia would take the Rohingya in for a second time, for example. Well, it's a bit hard to speculate, but I do think, uh, given the uh, massive media attention that uh, has happened around this topic in May, would probably make uh, sure that uh, Indonesia could not just turn people back into into the sea, because that would uh, be in breach with a number of like international conventions that Indonesia has in fact signed. So, and I'm not talking about the Refugee Convention, but rather like um, other conventions that uh, have to do with. Um, yeah, maritime security. However, having said this, there seems to be a bit of a split within Indonesian government uh, agency. For example, um, representatives of the foreign ministry, they would always uh, make a, a point that Indonesia uh, refrains from turnbacks or reformong, whereas uh, members of the Indonesian Navy, for example, would take a very different stance towards this. And in a way, this is exactly what we have seen uh, in May happening, while uh, the government was saying they don't uh, turn back uh, boats, the Navy somehow was the first to have a go uh, and send them back into, into the open sea. Late November saw a meeting of the Jakarta Declaration, a mechanism Ancha explained was established under former Indonesian President Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono to bring together countries of origin transit countries like Indonesia, and destination countries to seek more permanent solutions. I asked Ancha whether there was any prospect of a regional approach to asylum seekers, or whether Indonesia is inevitably going to be dealing on an ad hoc basis with each cohort of asylum seekers who arrive. Well, unfortunately, uh, even though there was this meeting in late November, um, it was almost impossible to get any news of what has been achieved uh, or what was the outcome of this meeting. So Indonesia has been trying over the past to include a number of like transit, other, other transit countries, uh, countries of origin, as well as um, potential destination countries to come together to talk things through. Um, they have tried under the Jakarta Declaration to uh, include a few more um, uh, ideas on uh, human protection, basic human rights and so on and so on. However, uh, so far I don't really see any concrete outcomes from these meetings and I assume that if there is another emergency situation as the one that we've seen in May, I guess the immediate countries such as Indonesia would be more or less again on their own having to deal with these um, incoming uh, people because why would Iran or Myanmar or some other uh, country of um, origin step up and, and, and deal with this. Um, given that it's often a, a matter of life and death, when people are trapped in the sea, uh, there is no time for lengthy talks. I guess they just have to act. Finally, I asked Ancha whether there was a particular recommendation she would make, having just returned from the camps in Aceh, of something that wasn't being done that would really make a difference to the Rohingya being accommodated there, or a lesson that we could take away from the response to the Rohingya in Aceh over the past six months? Well, I guess uh, having seen the conditions of the camps, I think uh, it's not a good idea to keep the people, the Rohingya, in those camps uh, much longer. Um, 
I think, uh, out of fairness, uh, they should get the same um, treatment as any other asylum seeker and, and refugee in Indonesia. Uh, so basically, giving them this harsh deadline of um, a solution needs to be found for them within one year is so unrealistic. And uh, I think the Indonesian government should rethink um, this condition because um, it's unrealistic and it's uh, particularly harsh uh, for people in the camps. Uh, no other uh, group has uh, basically uh, been facing such a deadline. Okay, so giving them sort of as long as it takes for the UNHCR to determine what their status should be and you know whether they might be resettled in a, in mm -hmm. a third country. Yeah, that could be a, um, one way to go about it. But again, if you, if you think um, in a more like long-term perspective, of course it might be um, uh, also a good idea for Indonesia to rethink its decision of uh, whether or not it wants to become a member of the uh, International Convention for Refugees and maybe uh, pave the way uh, for options of like uh, integration or resettlement into Indonesia. Anja, that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. That was Dr. Anja Misbach, Research Fellow in Anthropology and author of the new book, Troubled Transit, Asylum Seekers Stuck in Indonesia. And this is the final episode of Talking Indonesia for 2015. Thanks so much for listening throughout the year. Talking Indonesia will be back in 2016 with a new co-host, my Asia Institute colleague, Dr. Ken Setiawan, who appeared in episode four, speaking about the legacy of 1965. Look out for the first episode of 2016, on the 14th of January. In the meantime, you can find the whole series as always on the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or subscribe via iTunes or Stitcher. Until next year, this has been the Talkie Indonesia podcast. Goodbye.